All right, here is where we are in James's book. Again, James is the brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And again, we are going to sit in the idea of his influencers. We can clearly see the influence that Jesus had upon him. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that we could see Mary's impact upon James. We could see John the Baptist's impact upon James. And today we're really going to go sit in. Here's how the Old Testament impacted and influenced James in his relationship with Jesus, his brother, as his Savior. And again, as we sit here and talk about the Lord's glory, really impactful. In, in James, as, as an overarching umbrella, just using this, these couple of words that Jesus works. But I've used this imagery of here you got this anvil. And a hammer swinging away at this iron. Again, the, the imagery for me is like Jesus is at work in us. He doesn't care about the outward appearance. He doesn't care about what we look on the outside, how we meet the cultural standards or don't meet those cultural standards. Jesus, in relationship with him, we are told that he is hammering away at our inside. He's breaking up our hard hearts and is taking the heart of stone out and given to us a heart of flesh. That's the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. He is telling us that there is a refining process where our lives are placed into a furnace and he is burning out of us, refining out of us the metals that don't belong there, the dross that does not belong there and what remains is to be his image as he stares down into us, that whole imagery of a, you know, a refiner's fire in that furnace. But here it's this James, I mentioned last week that he's really dealing with matters of the heart. So last week we talked about really sitting in our emotions, the emotions that God has given to us, how those emotions can just be really out of control and the narratives that we tell us, tell ourselves and the, um, well, one, and how we're wired to the, the hard conversations that we have with all different people, whether, anyways, go listen to last week if you need a refresher there. But James is really dealing with our hearts, the way that we think, and he's freeing us from just as the gospel frees us from. It's the perfect law of liberty. We are, we are free from all of the, the bonds that our culture would place upon us, that the devil would place upon us, that sin uh, places on us, that we even ourselves would place upon us. He's, he's changing us and he's transforming us. And as we sit there in that image of Jesus swinging a hammer away at you, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yet the process is good. The process is needed. And I uh, keep saying to you, I'm having a lot of fun just studying James because my perspective has changed. I am choosing to count it all joy. I'm choosing to sit in James's true heart, which is for our blessing and for our benefit. He's not sitting there, here's where you fail. Here's where you don't line up to Jesus. We all know that that's true, but he's given us the encouragement of success. What, is it, what does it look like to really love the Lord and let the Lord transform us into his image day in and day out? And these are the subject matters that James is speaking about. All right, we're going to start chapter 2 today. I am going to read through uh, verse 13. We'll just read it through as is. And we're going to back up, and we're going to read through it, and I'm going to amplify a bunch of things. 
and then we're going to go turn to the Old Testament for a lot of his quotes and the influence of the Word of God, how it's influencing what he is saying here, and then we'll come back and really apply this in our lives. Before I do so, at the very end of verse 13, where it says that mercy triumphs over judgment, that's where I got the title for this morning's message, which is Swaggering Mercy. I'm up here swaggering in my white pants today, right? But I want you, what do you, what do you think of when somebody has a swagger? That there's a strut, there's an attitude. It's, it's boasting. Literally, this is what the word is. It's mercy boasts over. It has something over judgment, that it boasts over judgment. That mercy is better than judgment. When you sit in the Old Testament, God is the God of justice and God is the God of mercy. And his mercy always, as you pursue him, as you seek him, as you turn away from your sins, as you look to him for forgiveness and cleansing, his mercy swaggers over judgment. It gives us, it gives us awesome just attitude. And I want you to have this word swagger in your mind as you think about God's mercy. Because it's, it ought to strut in your mind, in your heart. Not the, this is how I deserve to be judged. And this is where I'm failing. No, look at God's mercy. Who he is in your life. Anyways, this is going to be awesome. You ready? Here we go. My brethren... Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
All right, go back to verse 1, and we're going to go through this whole thing again, and I'm going to give you some amplification of these words and these ideas. My brethren, do not hold this, this idea of faith. It's not talking about the quantity of faith. It's talking about faith as, a, as your possession. So there is no distinction. There is no, you have more faith in Jesus than I have in Jesus based upon your attitude and your behavior. Faith in Jesus is faith in Jesus. And this is, this is a possession. This is something that has been given to you. This is something that is yours. As your possession, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And the Greek is the glory. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, calling Jesus the glory. Hold on to that because we're going to see all of the weight behind that statement when we go back into the Old Testament. Do not hold, possess the faith of our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Partiality is the idea of being a respecter of faith. It's favoritism. But it's really easy to stand in this. We, we are partial in all things in our lives. We have opinions, we have stereotypes, we have prejudices. And again, the Lord is hammering away at us and where we are off in these things, creating us in his image and his mind. This is really easy to sit in as, as parents. You as mom and dad, you know your children. You brought your children into the world. You have been there since day one. You know their personalities. You know their struggles. You know their giftings. You know about them in a way that nobody else does. So when your child is having a, an altercation with somebody else's child in any fashion, what happens? Papa bear, mama bear. You have favoritism for your own kids, right? Your, your perspective is automatically in favor of your children because you know them. You know, even if there's a conflict going on that they didn't mean to, or they're not a bully, or they're not aggressive, th those kinds of things. And that reality is, is in that altercation, there's, there's a lot more that your child probably has in responsibility to the conflict that's going on. But I bring that up just, just as something that you can really easily grab onto when it comes to favoritism. The New Testament and the Old Testament is very clear. God has no favoritism. If you do not have a relationship with your creator... That's not only do you believe in him, but you believe his words and you were seeking after him and submitting yourself to him. If you do not have that, you are his enemy. No favoritism. Your works don't matter. Your appearance doesn't matter. Your wealth doesn't matter. Nothing else matters other than your relationship with him through his son whom he sent. In faith... In Jesus Christ, believing him and trusting him, every single one of us is a child of God. We are a friend of God. You are no longer his enemy. You're his. And you were one with him. You feel it? No partiality belongs in the body of Christ. God help us. 
there should not be a white congregation and a black congregation and a Chinese congregation and a Korean congregation and a rich congregation and a poor congregation, the have congregation, the have not congregations. We are one in Christ. Even in his identity and his image, God help us, because this is what he's de- this is what James is dealing with. He sees all the cultural tension. You see the cultural tension. He's going to deal with the rich and the poor, right? He's dealing with the rich and the poor. Favoritism is not of God. It does not belong in God's, in, in his that he owns and that he possesses. There should come into your assembly, into the word is synagogue. So in the Old Testament, a gathering of the nation of Israel, uh, the, the Septuagint, so the Greek translation uses both synagogue and ecclesia uh, as an assembly of the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, uh, the, the word for church is typically ecclesia, but here you see the influence of James's culture, especially here in early Christianity, in your synagogue, in your assembly. A man comes in, and this is, guys, you're not supposed to wear rings on your right hand in this culture. That would be effeminate. But man, if you are wealthy, you load up your left hand with rings. Literally, not just rings on every finger, but multiple rings on your fingers. This is the Greek and the Roman culture, and Israel is a part of this standard. The rich are coming into the congregation, and they are gold-fingered, those who have wealth. This is, again, a cultural standard of the time, and they're fine, and they're bright apparel. That's why I got white pants on. And there should also come in a poor man in filthy and dirty clothes, right? You see the contrast between rich and poor. And you pay attention, and the, the word is literally look upon. So you go back to Mary and where we quoted her magnificent, where she is saying, Lord, you have looked upon your maidservant. You, you are paying attention to me. It's the same word. If we look upon the one who is wearing fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in the good place, right? Think about Jesus talking in the Gospels about that the Pharisees, they desired to be in the best seats. That's the same phrase. But you say to the poor man, you stand here, you sit at my footstool. Word footstool, every time it's used, is always in reference to God's enemies, Look up the word footstool. Every time you see its usage, Old Testament and New Testament is in reference to an enemy of God. When he says that heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool, the world is God's enemy. In Christ, where are you? Are you still in the world? This is what's so awesome. Ephesians, he has seated us in the heavenly places on his throne, in Christ, with him, you are no longer of the world because you are no longer the footstool, the enemy of God. But think about what James is saying. This is, this is a cultural image. You say to the well-dressed guy, to the rich guy, you stand here in a position, you sit here in a position of honor. Dirty one, poor one, you're my enemy. I want nothing of you. I want nothing from you. I don't want to be like you. I don't need a relationship with you. I like this guy over here. I hate you. 
That's the heart that he's getting at. No, it doesn't belong in the body of Christ. Have you, verse 4, have you not shown partiality? And this is, this is the, the word here. It's you've, you've made a judgment. You've made a distinction. And the, the emphasis of the word is doubt. You are placing a poor person's appearance because in this culture, again, a poor person probably only had one cloak. It's going to get dirty. It's going to get washed less often. You are placing that person's faith in Jesus. You are casting a doubt in your mind, in everybody else's mind, in regards to that person and their relationship with your creator. Like, do you feel the damage that that can do and has done culturally within the body of Christ for 2,000 years? Congregation, you know, if you, can, if you can fork over some cash, we'll give you and your family a, a private booth up front and the best seats and in the best place. The poor, you guys get up in the balcony where you belong. Like we've had these distinctions in the body of Christ. No. And shout it to yourself. No, Lord, transform my stereotypes, transform my prejudices, transform the way that I interact with somebody that may, uh, may not be appealing to me, that may make me uncomfortable. They're a brother and sister in Christ. Don't let me be a judge with evil thoughts. And this is, this is, this is the words is, in judgment, it's unjust, it's unjust. So in my, not just my bad thoughts and my thoughts that are wrong, but it's evil, pernicious, um, permeating this, this reasoning. I have my reasons for why I think about this person or these, this group of people. Like sit in his words, have you not become an unjust man or unjust woman with not just bad, but evil thoughts in you. And again, this is where Jesus is hammering away at us, getting this stuff out of us, sitting in the, the wonders of the gospel that all classes and races, male, female, rich, poor, none of it matters in Christ. We are one in Christ. Keep preaching it to yourself. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen, elected the poor, not just of this world, so materially those who are disadvantaged and dependent in some fashion, but you can sit in, the word can not only mean of, it can be translated to, so chosen the poor to this world. You can sit in Jesus' beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Has he not chosen the poor to this world to be rich, abundant in faith? And again, not in quantity, but in the sphere, in the substance. He has chosen each of us to be wealthy, abundantly wealthy in our relationship with him and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who what? To love him. He mentioned uh, the same idea earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Here he has promised us that each of us is an heir of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. We are going to get back to the Old Testament foundation of that. 
Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. It's the opposite of the good place, honor. It's the bad place. You've dishonored the poor man. And again, it just, just, sits in, just sits in the world. In this culture, it says, do not the rich oppressed literally tyrannize you and drag you violently into courts. It's, uh, the word for drag there, it's the same word that is used for Paul when he was dragging believers to stand account for their faith in Jesus Christ and getting them to denounce their faith in Jesus Christ. So there's this violence, but it's in our world right now. What does Vladimir Putin represent? A tyrannical leader. I mean, there's a huge question mark over this individual's life, whether or not he is the richest human being in the planet based upon how he has gathered resources to himself and the power that he has. And not only himself, but the whole idea of the Russian oligarchy, where here are his pals and compatriots and those who are obedient and serving who he has made wealthy, according to this world. What are they doing to the Ukrainians right now? Tyranny. He said it just this simple, does our legal system favor the rich, yes or no? You got the cash, you can get out of just about anything. Hi, I don't know what that was. Uh, but if you have cash, you can just get, get out of just about anything. In this culture, again, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Rome, whether it's uh, the Greek cultures, the legal system, the rich, they could sue the poor people. They could sue their inferiors and drag their inferiors into the court. Could an inferior take a superior to court? Not in this culture. Wasn't, he, wasn't even allowed. And that's, that's the heart that he's getting to is the culture of the heart. Don't the, don't the rich who rule over you and oppress you and are just seeking to gather more, don't they drag those who are inferior into the courts? And what do they do in that process? They're blaspheming. They're slandering the name of God because God is the creator of the rich and the poor alike. And they're using their power, they're using their wealth to benefit themselves at the cost of somebody who is considered culturally inferior. You are called by the name of Jesus. He is your identity, he is your source, he is your everything. We're going to get, again, back into the foundation of the influence of these words of God calling those by his name, by name. Verse 8, if you really satisfy, fulfill the royal, the kingly law. So this is like the, the, the we're going to get into, you know, the loving your neighbor as yourself is identified as the second greatest commandment. Loving God is the first commandment. So as he calls this the royal law, the kingly commandment, the command that's over all others. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. And again, this is a hot pursuit that we need to be pursuing every day, our love for God and our love for our neighbors. You do well. But if you're showing favoritism and partiality in your stereotypes and your broad brushes, you're committing sin. And again, sin, it's missing the truth. That's all that sin is. You miss God's truth. And when you miss the truth, you are convicted 
by the law as a transgressor, literally a violator. Another reason why I'm wearing white pants. I am violating a cultural law today on purpose. I've gone beyond the line that's allowed. When it comes to the culture, who cares? When it comes to God's law, we ought to care very much. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in a single point, he is held guilty of all. Again, this is getting to, into a culture thing. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So our understanding is that James was executed in 62 AD. After his execution and before his execution, you have the zealots in the nation of Israel who want to throw off the oppression of Rome. And not only do they want to throw off the oppression of Rome, they want to throw off the oppression of anybody who may be Rome's friends. So even in the body of Christ, not only in the Jewish community, but sitting with people who have responded to Jesus as the Messiah, because it's not although we're instantly free from all of our other social pressures, you have people who are committing murder, who are literally taking knives on the Temple Mount, slicing the wealthy population of the Jews, stabbing Romans, sneaking away into the crowds. This was a standard that was going, no, not everybody was doing it, but this was going on daily, weekly, monthly in this culture. And he's saying, do you not know? Great, you haven't cheated on your spouse. Good for you, but you're okay to go stick a knife in somebody? You violated the whole thing. So now dial it down to, all right, none of you have committed adultery, praise God. None of you have committed murder, praise God. But maybe you've lied, maybe you've stolen. You know, we sit in the law, God's truth, and we've missed it on so many different points. And we want to exalt ourselves and say, well, I haven't missed it in all these areas. I just missed the little areas. Adam and Eve missed obedience and death entered into God's perfect creation. So speak, verse 12, and this is, again, this is the imperative. Speak, do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And this is the law of liberties. It's the law of freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. The covenant that he has promised to us. That he and he alone is the fulfillment of every jot and every tittle of the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill, not to take away. He is the fulfillment of all of the righteous requirements of the law. And because you have a relationship with him through faith, through trust, through belief that he has made you his own, you will be judged by his perfect law of freedom. You don't have to be like you were. You don't have to be like the rest of the world. You don't have to be like the devil. You get to be like Jesus. Make that choice moment by moment. Speak it, do it. We will be judged by this perfect law of liberty. Judgment, the judgment, literally, so looking to the future, the judgment is merciless to the one who has done no mercy. 
We sat in Revelation not that long ago, and the word for me that kept on coming up was how horrific all of those future scenes are. And this is, this is a great word for It's merciless. God's judgment is merciless to those who do not hold his mercy, his grace, his love through faith in his son. Like, do you feel that? But now the encouragement, but all mercy swaggers over judgment. Ready for the Old Testament? You sit in that, you study that. We're not going to have time to come back to any of this and apply it, but we're going to apply it through the Old Testament. So let's go look at some sources. I want you to turn to Leviticus 19. How many of you love to read Leviticus? There's something wrong with you. This is why Leviticus is so hard, because it's foreign to us. You're sitting in Leviticus. It has everything to do with the tribe of Levi. Moses is of the tribe of Levi. Aaron is that first high priest is the tribe of Levi. The priests are of the tribe of Levi. So this is dealing with all of these priestly things. So New Testament application. Jesus is the high priest. He is better than any historical high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is better than all sacrifices. He is, Jesus is better than everything. So when you sit in these kinds of, not these kinds of, when you sit in the Old Testament and you read through the laws, you beg God for wisdom. Let me see you and your son and your heart through this. So when you sit in all these boring chapters of Leviticus talking about all these different sacrifices, my eyes go cross. I don't know. It's, it's totally foreign. But then you sit and what does that say about Jesus and all the different kinds of sacrifices and the purposes behind it? What was God's heart? Because the sacrifices were to be a picture of not only the necessity for a blood sacrifice to atone for, to cover sin, whether individual or cultural sin, but ultimately that we're told that it is all pointing to that future singular sacrifice of God's son on the cross for, for humanity's sins once and for all. Amen? So when you sit in Leviticus, again, the, the heart, sit in God's heart. And as we're in Leviticus 19, there's, there's multiple commands here. At the end of each section, like at the end of verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God. The end of verse 12, I am the Lord. Verse 13, you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This section here from 15 through 18 this is what has influenced his thoughts. This is Old Testament word of God that he's sitting in. He's sitting in the culture. He's sitting in these teaching. He's sitting in faith in Jesus as Lord. He's looking at how these verses impact the congregation that he is there a part of in Jerusalem. And what is he quoting? Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. And again, this isn't like God harsh and like kind of stuff. This is, here's God's heart. God is not unjust. Therefore, he doesn't want us to be unjust. You shall do do no injustice and judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. 
Again, what was going on in Israel all the way back here is the same that was going on in James's time. It's the same that's going on in our time. Nothing has changed. But boy, has Jesus come in and change us. In righteousness, in the righteousness of God, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Think about last week as we're sitting in all the stories that we tell ourselves and maybe tell other people. Don't go about as a talebearer, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Guard your heart. Turn away from hate. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. So it's not just put up with everything. She shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But what? Here's the royal law. The kingly law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Turn to Deuteronomy. Chapter 5-ish. And chapter 5 is the quoting of the Ten Commandments. When you sit in Exodus chapter 20, these are words that God spoke audibly to the nation of Israel three months after he delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. The command to not murder and to not commit adultery. This is, these are the thoughts that James, again, that he is sitting in as he is pinning his document, his letter. Jump down to chapter 6, verse 4. These are places that you should know in the Old Testament and understand. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These words which I command you today, where, where should they be, church? God, write your word on our hearts. What are we supposed to do with them? Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. It should be like frontlets between your eyes. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All kinds of traditions came out of that. But the, the, the heart behind the, those traditions and the motivation is, yes, Lord, I hear your command, and this is exactly what I, what I want to do. Make it to be so. Now I want you to jump to chapter 7, verse 9. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps what? Covenant, which means he keeps his promises, and what else does he keep? Mercy. Swaggering mercy God keeps. 
That word is used over 240 times in the Old Testament. It is a reference to God's loyal love, to his compassion for us, to his pity for us, to him withholding justice and judgment because he knows that we are broken. And we, when we look to him as the God, the faithful God, he keeps his promises and he keeps his mercy for a thousand generations. Humanity has not had a thousand generations. His mercy is continuing. With those who what? You read it? With those who love him. It's exactly what James has quoted twice already in his letter. Here are his promises to those who love him. With your heart, with your strength, with your mind, with your soul, with your mouth, with your actions, love him. And because you love him, he is going to create in you that desire and those same actions to love your neighbors as yourself. He keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face not a respecter of persons, to destroy them. God's judgment is merciless to those who have done no mercy. He will, be, he will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. And this is, again, why we look to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the keeping of the commandments, the statutes, the judgments that were commanded by God through Moses that we are to observe and keep. Jesus is the fulfillment, and he is leading us in those things. All right, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I love the word of God. 28 verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. What is the commandment of God through the New Testament? To believe on him in whom he sent. Believe on his son. Verse 10. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of the ground and the land which the Lord, uh, Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens to give you the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. Continue on there. Incredible promises. One last stop and we're done. Second Chronicles chapter 7. In every single one of these passages is an influence, is a foundation, 
is the background behind James's encouragement to us in the body of Christ, not to have partiality with one another, but to see each other as one and restored and unified in the image of Christ. And may mercy just swagger in all of our thoughts and our behaviors and our words. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is Solomon dedicating the temple earlier on. He has already prayed when Solomon finished praying. Listen to this. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But you got to put this into Pentecost in that the early chapters of Acts where when the Holy Spirit is sent, what are we told? That they see tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples. Fire coming down from heaven. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The glory of God came and took up residence in the temple of God, which is you and me through faith in Christ. Do you feel it? Do you see it? Do you know it? Do you understand it? Do you walk in it? The glory of God filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord. Why? Because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces on the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, What? He is good. His mercy endures forever. That phrase, he is good, his mercy endures forever. It's quoted about 40 times in the Old Testament. I think it's Psalm 136. Probably says that 30 times. Our God, he is good. Do you believe it? Our God, his mercy his loyal love, his gentleness, his compassion, his withholding of judgment, his mercy towards you through his son, it endures forever. Jump down to verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. God hears you. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Child of God, that is you. He has chosen you as a place for himself, as a house of sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice unto your creator. Verse 13, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. You're sitting in that trial and tribulation. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, 
and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David, as I promised with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler of Israel. And oh boy, did Solomon fail. And oh boy, did the future kings fail. But what didn't fail? God's swaggering mercy. I just want you to have that image of your God in your life. He has all power. He has all boasting. He knows you. He loves you. He's attentive towards you. His mercy in your life, it is swaggering. It's boasting above anything else that could possibly be held against you. So is his grace. So is his love. What an incredible God we have. May we each know him. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm praying right now, Lord, I want to see your glory. I, I hear Moses crying to you, Lord, I've, I've seen you and I've heard you in so many different ways in my life. I yearn, Lord, to see your glory to see all of your splendor, all of your majesty, all of the weight of you. We're thankful, Lord, for your promise that your glory has filled this house. Let this house, Lord, be a place of sacrifice. Let this house be a place of prayer and petition. Let this house be a place of praise. May this house be free from all bondage, Lord. May this house, Lord, be upon the firm foundation of the law of liberty in your son. Take out of me, Lord, the thoughts that I have of favoritism, of prejudices, of stereotypes. Forgive me, Lord, when I have looked at my brother and my sister and I judge them with evil thoughts. Give to us clean thoughts, good thoughts. And may those thoughts, Lord, may they boom out of our souls as we love you, as we love those who love you as we seek to share with all of those who are still defined as your enemies, Lord. May they turn from their destruction. May they turn from your merciless judgment and come to you through your Son. In you, all things are possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray.